Welcome to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM New York, your weekly news show where we dig into the topics that are dominating discussion, where we focus on policy and politics and bring you conversations with the politicians and the pundits, the policymakers and the movers and shakers. Driving Forces is your place to hear about the issues that are making the headlines or ought to be making the headlines. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and each week I am joined by my amazing co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston, because we strive to explore the topics that you care about, from healthcare to the environment, education, transportation, and so much more. So let us get to it, and please join me in welcoming my amazing colleague, Celeste Katz-Marston. Hey, Jeff. Great to be with you, as always. A busy week. I know we always like to start out with a few of the headlines and really been focusing, of course, this week on this incredibly, incredibly disturbing uh, train accident, this train situation out in Ohio. We've been seeing that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and former President Donald Trump have made their way to Ohio to the site of this disaster and chemical spill. And it looks like, according to at least the preliminary NTSB report, it appears that there was an overheated wheel bearing that contributed to this disaster. And, you know, Jeff, it's just so scary to think about your community suddenly having to deal with something like like this out of nowhere, being afraid to even drink the water that comes out of the tap or take a shower because it might be contaminated. And of course, this tragedy wouldn't be complete without everybody making it into the political football du jour. Yeah. And I, there was a piece that I had read, I think it was in the New York Times, Celeste, just about the livelihood of people who live in this community. I mean, I think it was what, only 4,700 people who live there. Uh, a woman was profiled, just I think her son, a relative was saying, you need to move out here to California because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, she noted that I think that even if I have this correctly, that the eggs that were being hatched by her chickens were kind of like a purple hue right now. I mean, it's just very, very upsetting, very disturbing. And it's going to be a topic that I know is going to come up this hour because of the topic we're going to discuss. The thing that's been on my mind, by the way, because I mentioned the chickens, and this is something that I kind of have become a little obsessed about recently is this, uh, the avian flu outbreak that has taken place. Um, I mean, it's just incredible. There was one quote that just stuck out. The threat of continued infection is out there. We're going to have to develop a way to cope. Obviously we're seeing increases in the cost of eggs, but it's, it's not just about that. It, this is a deadly outbreak, the deadliest outbreak on record, Celeste. Yeah, absolutely. And we were just talking about this the other day, actually, about this whole thing about, uh, you know, not only sicknesses in animals, but these crossover type viruses where we're looking at uh, coronavirus. We've looked at Ebola, you know, lots of things to, to consider here. We are hoping, certainly, that the uh, the technology and the science can keep up with this. But there's always a risk, Jeff. Yeah. And by the way, I'm very glad that you did bring up the incident that took place in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, Media Matters, for one, it pointed out that after this incident earlier this month where the train operated by Norfolk Southern carrying toxic chemicals had derailed and hazardous chemicals were released into the air, land and water, uh, Media Matters had noted that it basically took a while for national media to really uh, to really focus on this as much as it should have. For more than a week, the national TV news networks did not offer important critical context about the industry's efforts to weaken safety regulations. And a lot of this is on our minds because of today's topic, how much trust do Americans have in the media? I mean, think about it. Where and how do you get your news? Why do you go to certain media outlets if you do at all? 
we we had been at a high point of respect and trust in the media a half century ago. Think about when Watergate and the fall of our president. I mean, that year, 1972, was when Gallup had started to track the public's confidence in key U.S. institutions. And between 1972 and 1976, 68% to 72% of Americans expressed trust in the mass media. But by 1997, trust had dropped to 53%. And trust in the media, which has averaged 45% since 1997, has not reached the majority level since 2003. I just finished a book, Celeste, by Margaret Sullivan. As our listeners probably know, she's the former public editor of the New York Times and was a media columnist at the Washington Post. And she said in this book, which is called Newsroom Confidential, that these days we can clearly see the fallout from decades of declining public trust, the result, at least partly, of so many years of the press being undermined and of undermining itself. One more slight quote from a small quote from her. The distrust of the mainstream press seems to get worse every day, like so many institutions, business, education, the police. The American news media is far less trusted than it used to be. So we're going to talk about what does the landscape look like now? And just a few weeks ago, a new report came out that illustrates how trust in media continues to crumble in our country. As a working reporter, obviously, this is of great interest to me, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with our next guest. And the report by the Gallup and Knight Foundations sought public opinion on the news media's role in American democracy with a focus on Americans' expectations and evaluations of the news media delivering on its civic function of informing the public. And earlier in earlier reports, Gallup and the Knight Foundation offered insights into how Americans think about the motivations of news executives and also how news is funded. And what they found is that most believe that the news media puts business needs ahead of serving the public. And they are are interested to, you know, it's interesting to see also that uh, those who think news organizations balance civic purpose with corporate needs are more likely to have paid for news in the past and be willing to do so in the future. And that suggests that the news media's future financial sustainability, which is a big deal, is tied directly to our perception that journalism organizations are fulfilling a democratic need in society, Jeff. And that focus, uh, the focus of the report now, the new one, is to expand understanding of the emotional factors that drive attitudes about the news. So that brings us to today's first guest. Jesse Holcomb is a researcher specializing in the study of American news audiences and journalists. And since 2018, he served as principal advisor to the Knight Gallup Trust Media and Democracy Research Program, as well as a lead analyst with the Institute for Nonprofit News. Now, previously, he was the associate director of journalism research at the Pew Research Center, where he spent a decade designing and executing a range of research agenda around news, technology, and civic life. And he's also an assistant professor of journalism and communication at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Jesse Holcomb, welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. Well, thanks, Jeff and Celeste. It's great to be here with you to talk about this work. Before we dive into the findings, can you first just give us a bit of background on the history of this research and when it began? I sure can. So this study is just the latest installment in a research program that began about five years ago between the Knight Foundation and the Gallup Organization with the goal of understanding the root causes of distrust in the news media. If you recall at the time, this was 
uh, after 2016, after the presidential election, when Trump won, uh, the, the sense of conflict between the president and the president's party and the news media was really reaching a fever pitch. So the goal here was to also equip the news industry with some actionable information to help guide their decision-making in uh, a very highly polarized era. And Jesse, welcome to the program. And before we uh, get into some of the details of the report, just want to do a quick definition. You uh, you used the term here, emotional trust. Can you just explain f- uh, for people who are listening uh, what you are defining that as and, and how we talk about that in terms of how people see the media? Absolutely. So one of the contributions of this new research is to underscore the idea that there's not just one kind of trust. So a news audience member might believe that the media outlets they they watch or read or, or listen to have the resources and the capital available to them, the skills perhaps, to do the job. That's a kind of a practical level of trust. But when we get into questions of do journalists really have my best interest at heart? Do they care about me and my community? Are they out to serve me or are they out to actually uh, misinform me on purpose? That's where we get into some of the this emotional trust idea. Um, and we found some really interesting differences uh, depending on which kind of trust we're asking people to talk about. And, and that's fascinating. I'm very interested to hear what kinds of things did your research actually find about how much people trust the media or don't? Well, we found that a lot of Americans tend to believe in that first kind of more practical level trust. They think that news organizations have the resources. They have what it takes to do the job, Um, whether that's skills or whether it's financial capital. That's the perception. But when it comes to emotional trust, we saw something quite different. It was a really stark gap. Um, Bottom line, most Americans, frankly, do not feel that news organizations care. Um, about them or their communities, or in fact, are even actively trying to mislead them. So that was a pretty striking finding uh, that gets at that gut level sense of where Americans are at in terms of their connection to and relationship with the news. And it's so interesting you mentioned that because, you know, I live in a borough here in New York City where we have a number of local newspapers. And one of the things that was really telling from this report was there were stark differences when you look at the numbers, for instance, between the views that people have of mainstream larger outlets, national ones versus local news. Can you talk a little about the level of trust difference when it comes to local news versus national? I sure can, and I'm glad you brought that up. As a survey researcher, when you ask a survey respondent, what do you think about the news media, there's kind of a lot going on in that question. Uh, What exactly is the news media, right? It it could be CNN. It could be Fox. It could be an NBC primetime program. It could be an NPR broadcast. Or, as you know, it could be a local community newspaper, Uh, So there are a lot of different types of media. And one thing we found consistently in this study, but also many of our studies over the past number of years, is that local news is consistently viewed more favorably by the public than national news organizations are. Uh, For instance, just 23% of Americans, Jeff, say that 
national media care about the, the, the best interest of the audience. Uh, but local media are rated twice as favorably on that score. That's uh, well, I guess it's sort of good news and bad news as somebody who's been uh, a local reporter and had to face angry people at uh, town council meetings or school committee meetings. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, giving face, giving a, a real human person to attach to the media writ large. Um, I'm wondering, do you talk at, at all about uh, in your research about what role local journalism can play uh, in restoring trust in the media? Well, it, it really comes down to playing off of one's strengths. And you can find an interestingly similar pattern when you look at trust in other institutions. Um, it, the, the famous one that's often cited is uh, people don't really trust Congress very much, but they are more likely to say that they think their own member of Congress is, is doing a pretty good job. Um, so as you, just as you note, Celeste, I really think it, it comes down to developing that relationship between the audience and the publisher. And this is not to say that local news always just does an excellent job all the time. Even in the data, you can see there's a fair bit of skepticism. But uh, there, our past research on this research program has shown that most Americans think of local news organizations as a civic asset. It's something that really helps tie a community together. Um, it, it helps promote transparency and accountability in government, which is something that is kind of like a, a, a transpartisan, cross-partisan aspiration. Um, and, and local news really actually covers a lot of the issues that Americans really care about, um, information they need to know. You'll see a through line through lots of the survey research that even though Americans tend to get sort of dragged into some of the uh, political discourse of the day, uh, that dominates the headlines, there is also kind of a visceral reaction to that and a weariness to it. We've found that many Americans are starting to feel a little bit of burnout with the news, that it's tiresome, it's taxing, it's depressing. And it's possible that local media can play a role of being an antidote to that in some ways by giving people the information that they need to know uh, to help them live richer and fuller lives in their community. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. And we're talking with Jesse Holcomb, a principal advisor to a new study that found a drop in trust in the media. Jesse, you know, it's interesting because... This report is very comprehensive, and before we let you go later on in the show, I want you to uh, let people know then where they can go to read this, because it is, I mean, I, every page of this report, I found something else that was uh, troubling to me as a former journalist, uh, and I noted a difference along, like, where people get along generational lines, where they're getting their news, how, you know, where they're finding news. Can you just talk a little about some of the differences between, you know, age groups, but also political affiliations and, and the level of trust people then had in media? Yes, I absolutely can. We have seen some pretty significant differences and divides, both generationally and when it comes to partisanship in terms of attitudes and where people are going. So, um, Older Americans, for instance, uh, are more likely to view the news media favorably than younger Americans are. Uh, 
uh, a po a positive views of the news media are at something like 14, 15% among Gen Z. And we also see a, a divide, probably not too surprising, when it comes to partisanship. Uh, Republicans are much more skeptical of the news media than are Democrats and, and even independents. But one thing that might be cause for some concern is that over the past five years, we've seen skepticism increase, not just among Republicans, but also among Democrats and independents as well. So some food for thought there um, in the publishing industry. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that you that you mentioned that. I just actually got a, a text from a listener who says people now distrust media because the liberal press has become political. Reporters should report news and not be politically biased. So I, I don't know if you can talk any more about the, the variations by party or by political lean in terms of what people trust and do not trust. Uh, yes, I can, and and I appreciate the the listener's point. Um, there's uh, over the past handful of years, um, there's been a heightened uh, tactic used in a way to kind of um, uh, to make this more of a war between politicians and the media. And frankly, uh, it, it's argue you can argue that journalists, some journalists and these organizations have sort of let themselves get dragged into that. Um, and so perhaps, you know, some audiences are, 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 are noticing that and seeing um, a kind of political media that maybe they're not necessarily used to. But uh, we also, as, as probably everyone knows, we are living in an era of increased polarization. We've seen this happen pretty steadily over the last 50 years. And I think it's fair to say that there's a relationship between polarization and attitudes about the news media. So what we tend to find is that Republicans and conservatives will start to self-select a certain group of news providers uh, that they feel they can trust and are going to meet their information needs. We see the same equivalent, uh, more or less, on the left. Um, now, it's important, though, to also state that this does not mean that everybody is living in an entirely um, non-porous media bubble. We actually do consume information from a lot of different sources. This is just a trend that we've been noticing and picking up, especially along the margins. I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think we should look at this in a silo. This decrease in trust is echoed. Yeah, and a growing mistrust in other American democratic institutions. I believe that that's something you also can talk about. It's true. Uh, it's important to see this in that broader context. And as you noted earlier, that the Gallup organization and, and other organizations like the Pew Research Center have been tracking trust in institutions over many years and have seen a, a number of declines. And there are a lot of sort of macro society level um, reasons for for that. It's not just an American issue. We're seeing it um, in various places around the globe. And right here in the United States, I, I could say we're living in a moment where our institutions are really being pressure tested and there is skepticism. And some would point to economic reasons for that. Uh, others would um, note changes in culture, in tech and society for that. Um, as well as, um, as we've noted before, the increased polarization and, and how that sort of um, it leads to uh, change in the way that we perceive our institutions. So 
so the news media are not alone in this. Um, it is a broader issue, one to grapple with. And so I think it's one thing that's actionable and that's important is to recognize what it is that you can change and control um, versus what is part of the broader milieu. And Jesse Holcomb wanted to stay on that for one second. We had another person who wrote in on this topic who said, please discuss the fact that most people expect their news to be free now. I'm wondering if your research um, touches on and you can talk a little bit about how people's attitudes towards the trustworthiness of the media, you know, writ large, has to do with uh, specifically whether they get their information from paid subscriber sources or from free sources. Uh you know, we've I've written about, you know, the issue of this proliferation of sources of news, including social media, Twitter, whatever it may be, um, where they don't have the same rigorous standards of fact checking, verification, uh, identifying sources and so on. Um, you know, it's kind of a free for all right now. I'm wondering if that plays into your research. It does play into the research. We did found a relationship between emotional trust and a willingness to pay for news. So people who are, have higher levels of emotional trust in news media are more likely to, to have paid for news in the past, and they're more likely to say that they would do so in the future. There are indeed a lot of people who are, are perfectly comfortable getting their news uh, for free, um, whether that's getting their news on TV or getting it from other digital sources um, or, or whatever the case may be. And this is a big challenge facing the industry. Um, and there are different uh, approaches that the industry has uh, tried to, to level up in order to, to mitigate that. But the bottom line is that the relationship between trust and credibility uh, and the willingness to support news with your own dollars, whether as a, as a donor, say, to public media or as a subscriber, is really highly correlated. So the, the, the fate of the industry, if you will, is, is certainly tied to emotional trust. And that's a big headline from this report. Well, Jesse Holcomb, we could definitely talk about this more. I wish, as always, we had more time. We'll have to have you back. But for the moment, where can people read more about you and all this research? Readers should go to knightfoundation.org. That's K-N-I-G-H-T foundation.org. There they will find not just this report, but all kinds of resources in terms of data and research about different facets of the news industry through this night gala franchise that we've been uh, we've been producing over the past five years. Jesse Holcomb, thank you so much for sharing all this with us and for being here with us today on Driving Forces. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. If you're just tuning in, this is Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We were just speaking to Jesse Holcomb, who's a principal advisor to a new study that describes what we're seeing in terms of the falling trust in the media. And, you know, a few data points that we didn't get to, uh, but we have our next guest coming right up, I think. You know, three in 10 Americans get their news from cable news, and that's the most 
used news source. And uh, Americans who prefer to get news online or from radio tend to have lower emotional trust in national news organizations. But nearly half of Americans, about 47 percent, who prefer to get their news mostly online, computer, smartphone, app, or mostly from radio, have low emotional trust in national news. Only 15 percent of online news consumers and 20 percent of radio news consumers report high trust. Now, we know you trust us here at WBAI, and we appreciate that. And perhaps that is linked directly uh, to our mission to be a civically responsible, not-for-profit community local newsroom, Jeff. And by bringing that up, Celeste, you know, that's what's so interesting is because people really want unbiased reporting. But at the same time, people seek out news outlets and seek out places like WBAI because it often will confirm their views. So that's something we have to think about, too. Now, speaking of trust and who we listen to or watch or read, for me, I'm always looking at who who runs a media outlet, especially if there's corporate involvement. Uh, so that's why when... Uh, I talk with people about why they listen to WBAI. I find out it's the fact that we're listener supported and that we don't take corporate dollars. And that's appealing to our listeners. And I bring this up because WBAI can only bring you guests and these type of topics. Uh, we, we can only do that because we have your help. For more than six, what, six and a half decades, we've been bringing you original and insightful programs that focus on everything from health to the environment, of course, music, and so much more. And we know I may sound like a broken record, but we ask for your support each and every show because it's you, our listeners, who we rely on, the people who are texting Celeste during the show. Why not call and make a donation during the show? And again, we don't have big pharma or liquor companies or car manufacturers who give us ads. It is the listeners who sustain us and keep us on the air. So please just take a moment today to support WBAI. Go to WBAI.org and make a pledge to what we're calling the Tower Fund. And we'll explain what that is. Or you can become a BAI buddy in the name of the show. That's actually what Celeste and I would love for you to do. A BAI buddy is someone who basically gives a sustaining contribution. Every month it goes on my credit card, $10, $15, whatever you choose. Go to WBAI.org and make a donation and if possible, become a BAI buddy. We also know that many listeners find a value in being able to get a gift for their contribution. So Celeste and I keep lining up some gifts for you. Yeah, absolutely. If you listen to one of our recent programs, we had two really, really great guests on talking about a very important and widely acclaimed brand new book, Rikers and Oral History. That's out from Random House. And our guests uh, were the authors of that book, Graham Raymond and Ruvane Blau. And a few lucky people who support the WBAI Buddies program with a gift of $50 or more in the name of this program, Driving Forces can get a copy of this amazing new book as a special thank you gift. So please help support independent media, get a spectacular new book about one of the most notorious jails in American history and a part of our life and our public policy in New York. Go to WBAI.org and lend your support to Free Speech Radio today. And I mentioned the Tower Fund. What that is, if you are a new listener, and I hope you're not, I think the majority of people listening regularly tune, out, tune in to us, the Tower Fund is basically 
our campaign to be able to raise enough revenue to pay the $17,000 a month that we have to pay to be able to broadcast our signal from a top four times square, $17,000 a month. So that's why we're always doing this and asking for your support. Go to WBAI.org and lend your support for free speech radio today. If you just tuned in, this is Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and my co-host, Les Katz-Marston, here on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York, always streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to take a very short break in just a moment and then return with another guest to continue the conversation about trust in media. So for now, we'll leave you with Andre Day's Rise Up. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move. Day on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz Marston here with Jeff Simmons. This is Driving Forces, and today we are focused on trust in the media. So when you watch the news on TV or you open a paper or you listen to the radio, you know, do you take what is written or what you hear at face value, or do you question whether there's bias behind that reporting? Do you choose a news organization to get information based? on what you feel is credible and factual or because it fits your political views. Who do you trust? Why do you trust or not trust certain media? That's what we're talking about today. And there is a progressive nonprofit organization that is dedicated to monitoring, analyzing, and correcting conservative misinformation in our country's media. Launched nine years ago, Media Matters for America put into place the means to systematically monitor a cross-section of print, broadcast, cable, radio, and internet media outlets for conservative misinformation. Angela Carasone has been the organization's president and chief executive officer since late 2016. Previously, he was executive vice president. He initially joined Media Matters back in 2010. 
So Angelo is an expert on right-wing extremism. He's been a go-to resource for journalists writing about disinformation and an authority on brand safety and advertising. He's also a prolific advertiser who has led many high-profile corporate campaigns. He is uh, behind the viral Dump Trump campaign that convinced Macy's to terminate its business partnership with Donald Trump back uh, some years ago. He was also instrumental in the advertiser pressure campaigns that resulted in Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly's terminations from Fox and one of the key players that disrupted Rupert Murdoch's attempts to take over Sky News in the UK. So with that background, Angela Carasone, welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to get into uh, something we were talking about a little bit earlier. We were talking about a findings of a new report from the Knight Foundation mm-hmm. and Gallup that showed declining trust in the media. We imagine this is not terribly surprising to you, but we want to talk about more about why you think this is happening and what can be done to reverse that. Gosh. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is definitely happening. And I think the, the latest report is consistent with, I think, people's feelings, let alone where the trends have been. And and I think there's a couple of factors. Some of them are, are, you know, unavoidable. They're just part of the economics of the news business. Um, that's why it's important for there to be sort of nonprofit uh, news media to sort of be a little bit of a buttress to the industry. But part of it is just is just the is the economics. So you have a hollowing out of so many layers of news and information gathering and distribution, and that we saw that trend, re- you know, a lot at the local level, right? Um, and that's not to say that it's been decimated, but so many resources have been taken out of it that you lose the ability to do the kind of truth vigilantism that I think journalists, um, uh, uh, that people often associate with, like, I, I, sort of the ideals of journalism. So that's the first thing. Um, but there's a consequence of that. Beyond just losing some of that capacity, you actually become more vulnerable and more susceptible to manipulations, to attacks, to disinformation campaigns. And I think that's partly why you're seeing this trend escalate. And and specifically, uh, I would say that, you know, and this is where sort of our focus comes in, <clears throat> I mean, there is a, a fairly concerted, uh, large sort of ideological effort to, to work the refs in newsrooms for partisan political ends. This is largely coming from the right wing. Um, but it also is, um, it's also, uh, I would say, a, a, so part of it is that, and part of it is that, you know, the news media itself is sort of been responsive to it, um, which then it it not only means that they're poisoning the well with sort of the conservative audience that has been hopped up on the false attacks against them, but then they actually start to erode their own credibility with their core audience because they're sort of reflexively pandering to or mollifying their, these sort of bad faith right wing criti- criticism. So big picture, I would say some of it is unavoidable, the economics, but then the other part of it is that the industry itself has you know, over the last few decades in particular, you know, has been way too responsive to the sort of right wing efforts to, um, you know, to, to, to manipulate the, the newsrooms. Angela, it's great to have you on the show. Um, Thank you. You know, one of the. One of the topics we talked about at the very beginning of the show, because uh, Celeste brought it up initially, was what's been happening in Ohio with the uh, the train derailment and the major environmental issue and how media, uh, nationally media in particular, were very slow to respond to this. And, and um, I'm really curious about how media matters, because I followed this, but I, I can't, uh, I don't think my listeners know about this, but I would love for you to shed some light on how media matters has responded to this and what you have felt about the way that media has covered this. And in big picture, I think they have failed. 
um, in a few ways. So one, some of it is about our coverage, some of it is my own impressions of it. But I would say, you know, I always start with, especially when you're talking about things like trust, um, you know, you can disagree with people, even things like bias. So a lot of times the, the conversation about trust in media boils down to, oh, is somebody biased? And therefore that means that nah, people, it's this idea that somehow people don't have bias or that it doesn't seep into publications that I think it's a standard that everybody knows is sort of nonsense. That doesn't mean that they're disreputable, that their content is misinformation or that it's lies, but there's bias in everything you do. It's just in, 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 in what brands you choose and what snacks you have and what you, in what you choose to report on, what you choose not to report on. Uh, and then, of course, that filters down to how you report on it, and bias can lead to misinformation. So the first thing I would say is when you're talking about trust, it gets into what, what not only what newsrooms are covering, but how they're dealing with it. And one thing, the clearest example of how this was a fail is not even just looking at the reporting itself, which is an issue, right? There was issues with the reporting, you can get into it. But it's in how much of the coverage, as you pointed out, A, was slow, and B, didn't actually start to get into some of the core anxieties that were permeating and percolating for days, uh, and that was the health and safety. So when you have, you know, when you have a black plume in the sky, the clear that every part of your body, every instinct of you as a living creature says that this is poison, and the animals are dying around you, and the only narrative that is, that is being perpetuated in the news media that it's safe or somehow not that bad, um, that's terrifying for people. And instead of newsrooms, there was a one you no, know, there was a one incident early on where a news anchor, you know, or a reporter was sort of kicked out of an event, and that got some coverage. But by and large, at those early days of the initial coverage, it didn't, it didn't, cut, it didn't respond to the core anxieties of not just the local community, but then the people around it. Um, and so that that really is it gets right to the heart of the conversation because time and again on some of these big major things, newsrooms have sort of messed up. They didn't read the room effectively. And because either they decided, hey, this is not a national story yet, or, you know, there's a thousand, you know, they, they overanalyze it. Oh, there's a thousand train accidents, you know, with chemicals that happen all the time. So this is just another one that happens regularly. Well, people don't know that. They don't see that. They don't feel it. They see this. And I would say early on, not that I think that newsrooms have to only respond editorially to think about this trust thing. I don't think they should overcompensate for it, but it, sh it has to be a reality because the currency of, of journalism, of news, it is a profession. And there are standards by which you, you know, have to operate. You need to have some degree of trust and reliance on the professional assessments and what these people do. And so at its core, right out of the gate, I would say those initial days, did so much damage to just the bond between news, news gathering, news distrib distribution, and readers or consumers of news because it didn't effectively or in any meaningful way address the core anxieties that were percolating. Even recently, you know, about the way the cloud was moving and whether or not that was affecting people in, in Western New York on the East Coast. When I was looking for information about that, because I was kind of curious over the weekend, when you were to really start to dig in, you would find all sorts of discussions about that in the online fever swamps, uh, on TikTok, uh, from people that were not journalists or experts uh, with all kinds of nonsensical maps, but where you couldn't find a, a very robust discussion of that. Maybe obviously there was some reporting about it, but not a lot was, um, was in any of the major newspapers about it. Now, sure, they would point to a reference here and there but they weren't making it a priority to respond to those feelings. And I think especially in this precarious moment for journalism, 
when you have something that transcends the, the, the traditional partisan battles, and I think that's part of the other issue is that they've over-politicized so much of their coverage that everything has to take a right-left binary or a partisan frame, that, that really does change the, the, the calculus around a lot of the supporting. So at its core, big whiff, just in, in addressing that one simple thing, which was, this is bad, this is scary, and is this, the government says this is safe, but this doesn't feel safe. So help us understand what's going on here. And I just think big picture, they didn't respond to or validate the real anxieties or emotions of their audiences. So I would say that's a huge problem. And then, of course, you can get into the policy stuff, right, because they clearly made mistakes and failures on who to blame and how, how we got here in the early days. They didn't do enough context about, you know, what regulations were mm-hmm. reduced under the Trump administration. And, you know, that wasn't a huge part of their reporting initially and even now. And sure. And I think that's important. I, I do. I'm not dismissing the significance of that, but that gets into that partisan side. And I think when we're talking about the sort of existential nature of, of real journalism or real news, at mm. some point, that stuff is almost – it matters. So I'm not dismissing it. It's part of what we do is try to balance those scales in favor of evidence. But before we can even talk about how effectively they were navigating the responsibility and allocating the responsibility and pointing it to the right decision makers and who was to blame, um, I think they failed to something that was even easier and more important, which was addressing the core anxieties and concerns of – so many people who were watching these videos and seeing and hearing all this misinformation that was mm-hmm. percolating online. And there wasn't even, which is, which is, I think has been truly devastating. There wasn't even a lot of good information to counter it with. We're talking to Angelo Carasone from Media Matters. This is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. We're going to invite you to call in with your questions. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. Do you trust the media? Which media do you trust? Do you trust the media less than before? And how come? If you want to keep your questions brief, we have time to get to as many calls as we can. 212 209 Seven, seven. And Angela, while we're waiting for some calls to come in, want to go back to what you were talking about just a moment ago about this, this sort of deluge of uh, conspiracy theories and people saying things on social media, on Twitter, on TikTok. Yeah. Now, some media outlets have essentially made this for some people a full time job. Fact checking, you know, you do it at Media Matters, PolitiFact, yep. uh, lots of places have a full time fact checking desk. And as somebody who's done some of this, try to do some debunking, it is Social media makes it really hard because I can write, say, a very just, just random, you know, pretend example. I can write a very serious story about treatments and, and preventatives for COVID-19, say. And then some Yahoo yep. with 500,000 followers on Twitter says, you know, take ivermectin. I feel great, you know, and I'm yep. just like, like, must you, must you. So my question to you is how much of this is redeveloping trust in sort of traditional media and how much of this is trying to, you know, narrow down this fire hose of just crazy nonsense on social media that is undermining the work of serious reporters. Yeah, look, I think you, you hit something that's significant here, which is that you know, I'm critical of, of newsrooms, of editors, of journalists when they, you know, for, for some of their coverage, especially when it's a part of a pattern. But that criticism is done in good faith. It's not designed, it's not, it's not coming from, a, from an expectation that they're that they're biased or, or out there to do harm. It's to help improve it. But that pales in comparison to what you pointed out, which is this asymmetry. 
And the asymmetry exists not just within the right-wing echo chamber. I mean, the reality is the right-wing echo chamber, which is part of, you know, sort of their talk radio infrastructure, Fox News, this sort of constellation of online publications and news publications, supposed news publications uh, that just distribute information, that is, that is really influential because they can supercharge content. And then you couple that with that existing infrastructure that has been around since the 90s, late 90s into the early 2000s, when you couple that with what's happening with social media, um, it, it creates two things. One, it's a lot easier for the algorithms to privilege those lies and for real information to break through. And we track this fairly extensively. There was a period of time on Facebook for years, up until recently, where on any given day, if you looked at all of the content that was consumed, about 50 to 5 to 60% of it on average every day would come from right-wing sources. Um, a sliver, so maybe 20%, would come from uh, nonpartisan or traditional news sources, and then the rest would come from left-leaning sources. And even though the content itself, the outlets, the number of nonpartisan, the number of news sources, you know, would be three, four, five times what was being consumed by right-wing media, and even uh, sort of it was almost on parity with left-wing. Um, but that's because the algorithms were privileging some of these, you know, these conspiracies, these false attacks, and. The one thing that I would say, and that can feel very overwhelming, it is. But I think I always point to the example of this, which is that you can fight individual stories, and there's various effectiveness to that. A lot of times it's very challenging. But at its core, there is a way to balance the information. And the one thing that the major platforms didn't do and just started to now, but now it's been upended because of these all platforms and because of Elon Musk, is think about Google. You know, you can go to Google – and you could search for stuff, and you know, and they don't not have bad information. There's all kinds of bad information in Google, but they weighted it so that the very first tops of results were not the most dis- were not coming from the most disreputable content. It was, or even the most extreme content. It was coming from content that they considered to be more authoritative, based off of how established it had been, how many people have referenced it, how many users have used it, how many other sources have relied on it. And unbalanced, most people don't think Google is lying to them when they search for stuff. Um, you have to really mm-hmm. dig a little bit to start getting to the more nonsensical. And one of the things the platforms didn't do, and still don't to a degree, is even though Google has weighted search results, they certainly don't do that on YouTube. In fact, it's the opposite. The worst stuff gets shared and distributed on YouTube. Their algorithm promotes things that have the most high balance response. That's the same thing with, with, uh, with YouTube, with mm-hmm. Facebook and for a while with Twitter, and now these new platforms. And I would say that's, that's, you know, when it comes to these platforms, the biggest threat there is not trying to chase down individual stories, although that's important. It's that we have to recognize that at its core, the algorithm itself is a product, and that what the platforms haven't done is think about what they're distributing uh, in a slightly more authoritative way. That doesn't mean they have to fact-check. In fact, I'd rather them not be in the fact-checking business. Mm-hmm. What I would rather them do, though, is not distribute content based solely on the one metric of what's going to get the most engagement. Because traditionally, the most wild things will get the most engagement and their algorithms will distort the landscape. And the worst part is that then echoes back into news media because then mm-hmm. what news ends up doing is framing most of their coverage, is, as you pointed out, as a fact check of something that had already been distributing as opposed to being the one to sort of lay the foundation and shape the story from the ground. So I do think it's a, it's a real threat. 
So very interesting. I want to um, remind people about the phone number because we got a caller on the line. The number to call is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877 to ask your question of Angelo Carasone about trust in media. Let's get that caller on the line. If you're still on, welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's your question for Angelo? Hey, it's uh, Roger from New Milford. Um, Hi, Roger. I believe the free- hey. I believe the phrase was stenographers to power uh, with the traditional media. And I think part of the problem is the, they're too close to their sources or their financial supporters. Um, you know, I, I definitely do not read the New York Times anymore. And question for Angelo, uh, Media Matters, is it just misinformation on the conservative side or is it misinformation in general? And specifically, let me ask you about the Cy Hirsch report of the Nord Stream 2. What is Media Matters? Do they, do they believe what Cy Hirsch is reporting or they dispute it? Good question. Uh, so I'll start big picture on the first one and then I'll get into the Cy Hirsch piece. Um, so on the first one, you know, our core mission has always been about conservative misinformation. At least that was originally the founding. The idea was no one's really thought about this massive concerted effort to work the refs in newsrooms. There needs to be some mechanism by which to expose it, to identify it, uh, to start to call it out, to unwind it, to get newsrooms to think about uh, the fact that they have these efforts. And, and a lot of this was born out of a combination, sort of the one-two punch of the march to the Iraq war and then the follow-up in the way that so much of the news media had parroted and carried the water for the absolute fabricated tax against John Kerry in the 20, 2004 election. And then Media Matters was sort of born shortly thereafter. Um, and so, and that was originally the fabulous thing. One of the things that shifted, though, and it gets to the question, is that as more and more of the beat became digital online, it's not as neat to fit into a box as, hey, that's conservative. And so, therefore, you know, that's only what we're going to focus on. Instead, it starts to expand out to broader misinformation because misinformation is harmful, period. And it's especially harmful when you're talking about not just one single radio station or one single host, like had been so much of our mission, but when you start to then take that misinformation and move it into these pipelines uh, of these powerful algorithms. So one example is, for example, on TikTok, we focused really heavily recently on not just the way their algorithm was sort of promoting all kinds of damaging content around uh, body image and weight loss to young women, uh, but also in the way that because of part of this, partly their advertising relationship, were aggressively promoting and using their algorithm and truly based on, it was all based on misinformation, but exploiting that misinformation to essentially sell, uh, sell stimulants to, 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 to young people uh, you know, using the information that they had. And it was born out of misinformation. They were then oper- operationalizing it for for, for, you know, for, for money. Um, and so it's expanded a little bit in part because we responded now more to the landscape and the structures. And I don't really think it's mission creep because it still privileges conservatives more in a lot of ways, but there's no way to really parse it out as neatly uh, as it was say when we were first founded. Um, and then I think that kind of ties in a little bit to the second question because we don't have a position on it, um, which is why we haven't done much on it yet. Uh, and I think that sometimes we know what we don't know. Um, the thing that we can say is when it seems to be exploited by a certain part of already disreputable sources, that's always a little bit of a concern. We watch that, um, but we don't. And, you know, and I think that's something we track. In some cases, you know, we have taken positions on similar types of reports that have been counter to the conventional wisdom and the assessment. In other cases, 
we don't know. We don't. We're not a research. We're not a news gathering operation, so we're not going to go out there and try to fact check it in that sense, or to try to do our own counter reporting. But what we're looking for is, and this is where I would say our one area on the side, Hirsch report is limited, is mm-hmm. to say, is this being exploited or used by disinformation agents in any meaningful way? And that's not something we've done any, any reporting on yet because we haven't seen that. Uh, but if, for example, we were to discover a bot operation that was exploiting that particular report, that would be the type of thing that where we would say, okay, this is an appropriate place for us because while we can't check, fact check or engage in the reporting one way or the other, what we can do is show when it's being exploited. So, and that's not just limited to that report, but it's similar types of reporting where it's like it's mm-hmm. not really clear what and how our lane is. Mm-hmm. One thing that would be clear is, you know, is there a misinformation adjacent angle to it that we can talk about? And that's how we would engage with it. Angela Carrison, we wish we had more time. We are right up against the clock, though. But if people want to find out more about you and the work of Media Matters, where can they go? They can visit mediamatters.org. Perfect. Angelo Carasone, thank you so much for being here with us today on Driving Forces and taking calls. So uh, we are going to have to wrap up the show in just a few moments. We want to thank Angelo for being with us today. Also, our earlier guest, Jesse Holcomb, and our intrepid engineer, Reggie Johnson, of course. Roger from New Milford, thank you for calling in once again. Uh, I will be back with you this Sunday morning. Uh, Celeste, you're going to have to get up earlier because I'm on at 8 a.m. now on City Watch. So uh, if you want, I'll call you at 7.59 and remind you to tune in. Thank you. <laughs> um, but it's an important topic. And if you care about the city's budget and economy, you're going to want to listen to this show. I'm going to be joined for almost the full hour by New York City Council member Justin Brannon. He chairs the New York City Council's Finance Committee. He's going to be taking your calls for a good portion of that hour because we're talking about the budget season. What do you think the city's budget priorities should be? Where should they add funding? Where should they cut funding? What do you think of Mayor Adams' budget proposal? Where? What? Look at the tug of war between the state budget and the city budget. Who should pay for transportation costs? Think about that. This show is at a new time, 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. So please get up early like Celeste and me, brew that coffee, and be ready to call in. We'll have much to discuss. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to today's edition of Driving Forces here on WBAI. We upload every program to SoundCloud, Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get your favorite podcasts so you can subscribe. Never miss a show. Just look for Driving Forces. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook as well. We are uh, off the schedule next week, but we will be back on March 9th. So until then and right now, stay with WBAI and we'll see you on the radio.